Lord, we just thank you for this evening, the opportunity to look at your word. We ask that you guide and lead us in all that we consider and the words that come out. And we thank you for your precious spirit that does lead us into all truth. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Ezekiel 13, starting at verse 9. And uh, if you remember last week, we were, he was talking about the false prophets that were leading Israel astray. And this whole chapter is about the false prophets, so we're going to try to continue with it in here. Verse 9, And my hand shall be upon the prophets that, that see vanity and that divine lies. They shall not be in the assembly of my people, neither shall they be written in the writing of the house of Israel, neither shall they enter into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, because even because they have seduced my people saying peace and there is no peace and one built up a wall and lo others dubbed it with untempered mortar saying unto them which dub it with untempered mortar that it shall fall there shall be an overflowing shower and you shall and you O great hailstone shall fall and a stormy wind shall rent it lo when the wall is fallen shall it not be said unto you where is the dubbing with which you have dubbed it Therefore saith the Lord God, I will even rent it with a stormy wind of my fury, and there shall be an overflowing shower in mine anger, and great hailstones in my fury shall consume it. Tulsa again, where you're at? Huh? Ezekiel, Ezekiel 13. Oh, 13. Verse, starting at verse 9. Okay. <laughs> so will I break down the wall, and you, which you have dubbed with untempered mortar, and bring it down to the ground, so that the foundations thereof shall be discovered, and it shall fall, and you shall consume it in the midst thereof, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Thus will I accomplish my wrath upon the wall, and upon them that have dubbed it with untempered mortar, and will say unto you, The wall is of no more, neither they that dubbed it. I'm going to stop there for a moment, because there's quite a bit that <laughs> we've covered. So we're looking at this. He's continuing in here, and, and the very first thing is, that God says in verse 9, My hand shall be upon the prophets that see vanity, then that divine lies. Have you thought about what it would mean on this, is to have God's hand against you? Uh, we've seen this many times, especially in the Pentateuch, where God's hand went against various individuals. Uh, Cor the Korite rebellion, God's hand went against them, and, and, the, and the ground swallowed them in, in there. They came up in various times that God was ready to destroy them all for their sins and their disobedience. We look at God during the days of Noah and his hand went against the people because every imagination of their heart was evil. We see it uh, all through scripture where God moves against people and his hand is against them. And this is something that we see even in our day at various times when people are getting so evil that God puts his hand against them and this is not a place that anybody would want to be and he's saying these ones are going to exist no more and that's what he says in the second half of that they shall not be in the assembly of my people neither will it be written in the writings of Israel basically he says I'm going to totally take them out the only record we have of them is right here in the cursing of them and we want to be very careful about this. We never want to see God's hand move against us. And he, we're his children, so we shouldn't. But, you know, sometimes we call it tough love. Sometimes yeah, that's what's needed. To the prophet, he's going to 
the false prophets. That's who he's talking about, because much of Israel is going into captivity. Uh, but just these false prophets, and again, remember what we said last week is these false prophets keep saying, we're, we're not going out of this, this uh, country. God's going God's to protect us. He's not going to send us away. Ezekiel, Jeremiah, number of, and God's prophets are all saying, get ready. You're going into captivity because of your sin. And the false prophets are coming along and saying, those guys are lying. This is God's, God's city, God's temple. You know, we're going to stay here and we're not, we're not leaving. So there's this battle going on between quote-unquote religious leaders, God's ones that got, the ones that God's speaking to saying, you're going into captivity, get ready, and the ones that are, as he's saying, uh, speaking vanity and, and divining lies uh, and saying they're from God. And this is something even to this day we're starting to see in, back in the churches, a lot of churches where we get pastors who are supposed to be preaching God's word and are telling us about how good things are and and how we're, how we're leading, uh, how we need to accept all the sinful lifestyles because that's God's love. And we're having this big battle going on. And we see it in the world. If you listen to the, the news and, and everything, they'll make fun of Christians who follow the Bible and say, well, how can't you, why can't you be more inclusive like all these other, you know, what we would say false teachers. And it makes life difficult for those who are going to follow the scriptures. And as we get more and more into the end days and we find more and more of these churches making bad decisions and saying all these different things, saying homosexuality is okay and divorce is okay and fornication is okay and all these things are okay, it makes it very difficult for those who are going to follow Scripture and be able to say, we're following Scripture. And the world's going to go, well, is there something wrong with you? What, what about all these other religious leaders? The abortion issue, just about any issue that you want to name, the Bible speaks about the clarity of it. Murder all the babies, it's no problem, and there's many that say that. Murder all the older people, there's no problem with that. because, of, you know, And we want to be careful because God has his word. And the sad thing is there's many full denominations even that are pulling away from God's word and away from the standard of God. And it's going to make things very difficult for those churches that want to follow God's word and for Christians who want to follow God's word. And we're, we're seeing it. We're seeing it already in this day because I've, I've already encountered it many times. Well, you're saying that you believe this Bible. What about this group or that group or this group? I'm going, well, I can't say what's wrong with them other than they're not following the Bible. And then, you'll get, then you have to start defending the Bible and all of that. Uh, right now... There's a, the paper the other day was talking about the ecumenical group of pastors that are meeting together with all the different church, churches and interfaith. interfaith group that's trying to meet together and basically they're throwing out scripture so they can all be one in Kingman. In Kingman. And this will be their third meeting in the last three, two or three years. You know, and I saw one name on it that disappointed me because I met the guy and I thought he was a pretty good guy and he's being part of that, <laughs> that group. At the very beginning? Well, you know, if God's saying, it, you know, my hand will be against the prophets, what's the significance of hand? Oh, hand. Oh, I thought you said and. Oh, oh, oh. Okay. Hand, hand. <laughs> hand strength, might, Physical power. Hand. Yeah, literally his, his power. It could have just as easily been his arm that they had talked about here, that he's, his strength is going to, basically his strength is going to move against them. 
because they're literally wanting to bring the idea of all of his strength coming against them, not just. Of course, if you said God's moving against you, you're, you'd be just about as bad. But I think he's, you've got to remember Ezekiel is very visual in everything that he does. So he's going to use these terms that bring in his hand. What, how do things work against you will be, you pick up your pen with your hand, you pick up the sword with your hand, you pick up. Uh, so he's, he's very visual. He's very uh, clear in those, those words. And then he ends with this. This is happening very often in these last few chapters. And he says that you shall know that I am the Lord God. This is his purpose. That he says, you've got these false prophets. They're saying that they're, all these things are happening. And I'm going to do, God says, I'm going to move against them. My hand's moving against you so that you know that I am God. And this is going to be a phrase that he uses quite frequently. <laughs> verse 10 goes because so this is connecting in here God's hands moving against them because even because they have seduced my people this is strong language when he says they have seduced caused to go astray to commit whoredom basically is what they're talking about and he's literally looking at it that strongly because God says that Israel is his wife and so when anybody's drawing them away, as far as he's concerned, they are seducing them into adultery. The whole idea of idolatry worship, this idea of people speaking things that God has not said to lead them away. This is why it's very serious for teachers that they teach correct doctrine. Because God is very serious. If teachers teach incorrectly, God takes it very serious because you're seducing his people or seducing Jesus' bride away from him then moving into adultery as far as God is concerned. It's a very serious issue for teachers to teach correctly. And not besides just the fact of leading people astray and leading them into sin, but he says you, you're going against God. That's a good way to have God move against you. And so he says, you seduced my people saying peace, shalom, and, and there is no peace. Now, we've mentioned before at times, shalom is, shalom is defined as peace, but it is so much more than just peace. It's not just peace from enemies, but it is the whole idea of blessing coming upon people. It's the idea of uh, being tranquil beyond just national but it has everything about God's blessing. It's a very strong word. When, they, when the Hebrews use the word shalom, they use it, to say hello. They use it for everything because it is, it's a blessing to you. It means peace. I mean, it literally means peace. If you look it up in the dictionary, it'll mean peace. Mm -hmm. But it's also a blessing upon you. May God's blessings flow upon you, which is where our true peace comes from. So he's saying, they say there's peace, but there is no peace. These people are moving away from God, and when you move away from God, there is no peace. Even for us as Christians, if we start moving away from God, we lose our peace that we have because God wants us to come back to him. So he will start pulling back the peace that he gives us, the peace that passes understanding and pulls it away. He says, one built up a wall and lo, others dubbed it with untempered mortar. Now, I tried to do some really looking around on this on what untempered mortar is. 
And apparently, I mean, maybe somebody knows more about plastering than I do, but apparently it is that it's unseasoned. It's, it doesn't have certain things to give it strength. Uh, and I don't know what that means or what mortar is that has strength, but mortar holds, mortar holds everything together and, and covers the holes. In my version says whitewashed. Whitewashed? Yeah, that's... Which might be what untempered mortar is, is more of a paint than, than mortar. Uh, so mortar is, that's what they put between bricks. Yeah, they put it's between bricks and fill. And fill, and yeah, fill. It's very smooth and very... Yeah. But the definition from the, from the books is it's unhardened, tougher, toughened, and treated, not brought into the proper consistency and hardness, is what it says in the, in the book, which would end up basically being paint. <laughs> When you got, if it doesn't have the right consistency and isn't going to hold something together, you're, you're, you're patching your wall with paint. And that's what it, they're trying to do here is patch the wall. God says the wall's being torn down and you're patching it. Um, and this is something we also do the same thing, don't we? When we're trying to do things our way and look spiritual, we might put up a, a paper wall or something. And make, you know, we know that it doesn't have any, any strength in it. We've, we've just put a little bit of, you know, uh, balsa wood or something, and we're going to say, okay, this is, this is going to hold, this is going to hold up to, to, to people looking at it. Wallpaper. Yeah, wallpaper. I mean, this is what he's basically saying. You're putting up this false wall, and it's a lie. It's vanity, which is the word we had up there. And he says, in verse 11, he tells Ezekiel, say unto them that dab it with untempered mortar, that it shall fail, it shall be, there shall be an overflowing shadow, shower, and you shall, and ye, O great hailstone, shall fall upon, and stormy winds shall rend it. So God's saying, this wall that they've whitewashed, uh, put untempered mortar in, uh, made a false wall, basically. Uh, we think about, when I think about this false wall, I'm maybe thinking of something like on a, a movie set or a, or a stage, where you have to move things real quick, so you make them very lightly. You know, it's got, a, it's got a frame that's somewhat sturdy and then there's nothing, you know, it's tissue paper that's been painted nicely. I think this is what God's saying they've made. They've made something that is just a false wall. It's not real, but it looks good. It looks good as long as you don't touch it. And we've been talking a lot about that lately is how many times do we say we're a Christian but don't let God help us live that life? And then just excuse it. Christians are famous for just excusing their bad, bad behavior, saying, well... God's gracious. He loves me. I'm a work in progress, and we're not seeing any progress in the work. We're just, we, we like to deceive ourselves, and humans have a great capacity to deceive ourselves. Uh, I was talking with Amy about this, with somebody who's just totally deceived themselves on, on problem in their life, that they just won't admit that there's a problem, but yet we all tend to do that so often we, we know, you know, in our heart, we know there's a problem, whether, we know our sin's a problem, we know this is a problem in our life, but we don't want to deal with it, so we make excuses, we deny it, we excuse, we excuse it, and we've all met people that'll do that. These people are setting up a totally false lie, and God says, I'm, it shall fall, he says, there shall be an overflowing shower, in other words, a torrential downpour. <laughs> is what he's talking about, to the point where it's going to cause floods. He says, your, your little wall is not going to hold up to the floods. And in case the floods don't, don't come along, he's going to send great hailstones. And 
Great is kind of an interesting word because it is big, and who knows what big is. God, God talks about hailstones that uh, have killed people in battles at times, you know, and so we, we know that there's hailstones. And if that wasn't enough, he says, I'm going to send a stormy wind to rend it. We're talking about a major storm. God is saying, my hand's moving against you and so bad that it is going to be, you are going to be in the middle of a tumultuous storm. Have you ever been in a tumultuous storm in your life where God's trying to get your attention? Mm-hmm. Where nothing seems to be going right and nothing seems to be protected and it, it feels like you are just being pounded from every direction because you don't pay attention. I've been there. I've done it. Usually if it gets that bad, it's because you are doing something that's lasting, that has lasted for years that you have not responded to. And then God says, fine, you, you want to be that difficult? Let me really give you the storm to make you decide to follow me or not. I guess the next storm up from the next step from that would be for him to just take you home because you're, you're not paying attention. But been there myself and, and done that game where God has moved against me where it seems like everything was going wrong for a period of time. He will do what it takes to win us back. Well, I would say most of our problems, even when God sends them our way, are we caused ourselves by not paying attention in the first place. So technically, we've caused all, we, we cause all our problems. Because he sent you a test, did you get the pass, did the right thing, or do the wrong thing and fail? He's trying to correct us. Well, not even necessarily even correction. Sometimes the test comes just to see, do we really believe what, what he tells us to do and do the right thing in, in action. And that's a lot of our test. And when we fail it, we look at it negatively. And when we pass it, we look like, well, uh, it wasn't that big a deal because we passed the test. And this is something tests from God are always designed to bring us to the edge of what we can do. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a test. And this is something we've got to keep in mind. And I, I bring this up, and I, and I turn it into academics, and I, because I like math. I go, if you're a high school student and your algebra teacher gave you a test that was the additions table or the multiplication table, and you're in algebra class, you'd probably look at the teacher and say, "What's the catch? This isn't this is this isn't even a quiz. What's the catch to this test?" God does the same thing to us. He's not going to give us a kindergarten test if we are at a high school level with him. Now, if we're, if we're a kindergarten, he's not going to give us a high school level or a college level test. He's going to give us a test equivalent to where we're at. Now, you give a, you know, a kindergarten or a first grader a one plus one test, then that's a test for them. They're just, they're just learning that. But you go to a, you know, somebody in high school and give them one plus one, you know, two plus two, they're going to look at you like, you know, are you insulting me? But God does the same thing in our life. He's going to give us a test that is going to be right at the edge of what he's been teaching us to see, do you believe it and do you follow it? And that means all of our tests will always get harder. And I hate to disappoint people, but that's the way life is going to be for the rest of our life. The test is just going to keep getting harder to make sure, are we growing with him and understanding it? The good news is, he will never give us a test that's beyond what he's prepared us to, to handle and that he won't give us the strength for because that's his promise. He's, again, I go back to the idea, he's, if you're in high school, he's not going to give you a college-level test just to see if you can handle it. No, that's not the way he thinks. He wants us to pass the test he puts in front of us so they're right at what he's been teaching us. But that's what I tell everybody. When we teach or you read the Bible or you hear a message, be ready for God to test that area that he's moving you into 
because it's wonderful. Now, when you pass the test, usually when you pass the test, you get through it and you go, well, there was nothing going on. I, I, you know, there was, nothing bothered me because you passed the test. <laughs> when you go to the test and you fail it, then it looks like the whole world's been against you because you've been knocked down and you failed the test because you didn't trust in God. We need to always remember some of the things are literally punishments for our misdeeds. Some of them are just tests. Do you, are you going to believe God? When you fail it, then it was a real trial. And when you pass it, you kind of go through and say, well, that was no big deal. And I've said this before. When you have your eyes on God completely in the middle of the test, you usually go through the storm and don't even notice that you're in the middle of a storm. When your eyes are off God, you're not even going through a storm and you're falling all over the place. <laughs> and you feel like you're in a bitter storm and you kind of look back, but you get perspective on it in the, you know, and you get past to the time and you look back and you go, what's all that big mess back there when your eyes were on God? And you look back and you say, wow, that was a pretty big storm. I didn't even notice. And then you get past somewhere you fail and you look back and go, how did that trip me up? It was such a simple, simple thing and I fell flat on my face. All depending on where is our focus? Am I focused on God? Is this Holy Spirit leading me in all that I'm doing or am I trying to do it in my own strength? The more I try to do in my own strength, the more I'm going to end up flat on my face because I'm not walking in the light and I'm tripping over everything that's out there and I'm being blindsided. And we want to look at this and God's saying, he's going to send the storm against those that are speaking against him in this one. And then verse 12 says, and lo, when the wall is falling and I love when you see this word when, not if the wall falls or that, you know, that it might fall. But he says, when the wall falls, it shall not be said unto you, it, it shall be said, it not be, shall it not be said unto you, I'll get the right wording here. Where is the dubbing wherewith you have dubbed it? You know, God says, okay, your wall fell, now, now where's, your, where's your patch? <laughs> where's the patches that you were putting on your wall? And this kind of goes back to the last week where we talked about the foxes coming in and the holes and the holes not being, being fixed. And then he says, oh, the false prophets are patching the wall with mortar that isn't seasoned, isn't, isn't mixed right, isn't, isn't going to hold up. And it's the kind of work that I would end up doing if I tried to fix it. it wouldn't, wouldn't, anytime I try to fix something, it doesn't stay fixed very long. So I don't. <laughs> so I, I understand this picture real well. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, to somebody who really knows it, they may go, well, no. And so, like I say, if somebody really understood mortar, this untempered mortar might really mean something to them. And there might be somebody that says, well, I know exactly what they're talking about. It would be not enough lime or whatever in it to make it strong. You know, it's, right. and, and I understand that, but I don't think, yeah, I think that applies differently. Yeah. Terrible. Yeah. Yeah, well, here it's telling them to do they should be fixing up the wall, so... Uh, verse 13 says, Therefore you shall say, thus saith the Lord God, I will rend it with a stormy wind in my fury, and there shall be an overflowing shatter in my, shower in my anger, and great hailstones in my fury shall consume it. So will I break down the wall that you have dubbed with untempered mortar, and bring it down to the ground, so that the foundations thereof shall be discovered, and it shall fall, and you shall be consumed in the midst thereof, and you shall know that I am the Lord." God wants to bring anything in our lives down to its foundation. If it's not built up by him, he wants to go down to the foundation, which is supposed to be him. And if it's not, he wants to take it down to the foundation. Paul said that I, 
have built on the foundation that Christ laid on peop about people's lives. And we have a foundation. If we're saved, we have the foundation that Jesus put it in our life. And then we build upon that. How do we build upon that? We study ourselves. We read the word. We, we find the right teachers. And if we're not careful, we can build a lot of garbage on the foundation that God built. And if we put a lot of garbage on that foundation, then he's going to come along and wipe out that wipe out the garbage and start rebuilding as long as we are willing to allow all of that. And even if we don't, he's going to wipe it out. But God is seeing what, hits, what needs to be done. I have, over the years, have seen many people who have had a lot of garbage that they've built on the foundation of, of their salvation. And sometimes it's from before they were saved. Sometimes it's from after they were saved. And a lot of times there's a lot of work that has to be done to tear down the bad building up on that foundation, which I've mentioned, this is why I'm very concerned about who teaches kids. I want good, solid teachings of kids because I have met so many adults that believe bad doctrine, and when you examine where they got it from, though it would be some sometime way back in Sunday school, my Sunday school teacher taught me this, you know, and, and, or, or I heard this in a pastor say this. And it gets interesting when you talk to people sometimes and you go, well, where, where, why do you believe that? Well, I just heard it in a message or I heard it in a Sunday school class. And you didn't go back and check it out. You know, this is why I tell people all the time, I want people to go in and check out what I say in the scriptures. Go back and research things. Look them up. Make sure it's accurate. I don't ever plan to teach people false teachings on purpose, but it's very easy to get a false teaching taught. Because if you believe it, it's not false to you while you're believing it. It is false, but you're not, you're not teaching it as a false teaching. And it's very important to get into the word and say, what does it say? Paul praised the Bereans because he says, you search the scripture to prove out what I say. And this is Paul telling them, I'm glad you're, doing, you're, you're checking out what I, what I teach. And I've said it over and over. If you're in a church where a pastor or a teacher is telling you, believe it because I said it, and encourages you not to research, get as far from that teacher as possible, because whether they're wrong at that time or not, they're setting you up for you to be taking the wrong route if they ever do go into false teaching. Well, human... Human nature is inclined to be lazy in the first place. Yeah. And, I mean, I mean, and part of it is that, well, this person obviously knows more than me because they went to, to school or they've been studying longer or for whatever reason you're trusting them. And to a degree, there's a lot of truth in that. But you need to be able to go in and research. Look at the verses. I can't tell you how many times I've, I've heard a pastor quote verses and I've written them down. I went back to check them. I'm going, this verse has nothing to do with what they were teaching. But it sounded good when they were teaching it. Here's five verses to go with it. You know. And they rattle off five verses. And you go back and look them up. And they're going, what does this have to do with what he taught? We need to be very cautious. Yes, there's some teachers that I listen to a lot more without verifying every single word they have. Because I, I trust what they say. But I don't trust them so implicitly that I'm going to believe everything they say. 
and I can think of people that I would believe that with. Uh, James Vernon McGee, I pretty much believe most of what he says, but there's a few places where I disagree with him. Uh, Chuck Smith, when he was alive, most of what he said I believed and had no problem with. There's a few places, though, where I would have problems. I would expect that people somewhere will have problems with some of what I teach because of what I teach, and that's fine. I, if you have a reason for not believing it and you can defend your reason, then that's all that's really important because I know what I believe and I know where I differ from other pastors that I listen to. But God will always bring us down to the foundation. If he hasn't built the walls, he's going to bring us down to the foundation all the time, which is also what happens when we go to the Bema Seat of Christ. He's going to take all of our works and throw them in the fire, basically, and say what's been good and what's been bad. And again, I loved it. I heard one of the pastors when I listened to him, God's putting them in the fire not to condemn us for everything we lost, but to reward us with everything that comes out of the fire that's good. God's purpose of that is not to condemn. It is to say, here, here's your rewards. Now, he might also show us at that time, well, you, these were the rewards you might have had if you had done things right. But his whole purpose is, here's what you're rewarded. This is what you get to carry into eternity. Now, the sad thing is, you don't carry anything into eternity other than your salvation. But at least you're in, you're in heaven. But he's saying God's going to bring it down to the foundation. And he's because they're going against him. God is a wonderful defender of his people. He will not let the unrighteous get away with it in the long run. And even though it seems like oftentimes they're getting, the ungodly are getting away with everything, you know, in my experience over my lifetime, I've watched the ungodly reap what they sow more often than not. And if nothing else, I know that they will reap it in the, at, at the white throne judgment, but I've seen en enough of them reaping their iniquity in this lifetime as well. And so I don't get too upset when it seems like they're winning for a short time. Besides the fact that they usually are so convicted that they're already not, not doing good in the first place. How many times have you talked to somebody who's, just, who's gotten saved and they just go, my life was so miserable. And sometimes you look at them and they were, you know, they were what we looked at and say, well, their whole life is put together. You know, they've got the mansions, they've got the cars, they've got the money, they've got this, that, and the other thing. And yet, they're not happy, they're not pleased. They have everything that people think they want, but they're still empty. Which is why there's so much alcoholism and drug use and suicide use out there because they got what they thought they wanted, fame. Whether it's the entertainment industry or the sports industry, most of these guys thought that, you know, if I get to be the, I make it to the NBA or the NBA or the NFL, everything is going to be all just fine because I'll be at the top of the, and they get there and they're still empty. The guy who works all of his life building a company, builds a multi-million dollar company and thinks he's, thinks he's got the, the world by, you know, by the tail and finds out that they're still empty. We will always be empty without God. And once you have God, it doesn't matter what you have because you have him. And this, and this is just it. He's put that hole in our life that, that only he can fill. And when you have an infinite God filling an infinite hole in your heart, nothing else will fill it. And we see it over and over with people. 
no matter how good they look to other people from the outside, they're just not happy if you get to know them. And this is why some people won't go witness to certain people. They go, well, they've got their whole life go. No, if you witness to them, you might find out that they need just what you're presenting to them because they don't have it all together. That's why alcoholism is so rampant amongst people that are in the entertainment industry, in the, in the, in the sports industry, in the, the executives of the, the big companies because they're still totally empty. Drugs, alcohol, all these things that they're trying to fill that hole with and it just never will fill. And if you ever want to find out that it doesn't fill it, read the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon tried everything to fill that hole and kept saying it's all vanity, everything. He did it with work. He did it with collecting. He did it you know, with women. He did it with everything that was out there and never found anything to fill it until he went back to God. And we need to be careful. We need to see focused on God and realize that most of the people without God are empty. I would say all of them. I don't know of anybody who isn't empty out there that doesn't know God. And they don't, well, they don't know they need God. They know they're empty. They know they don't, haven't got what they want, but they don't know that it's God that they need. And we then, you also have people that are religious that are empty because they still don't have God. They have all these good rules and good ideas and good actions, but they don't have God. And they're empty. And in Ecclesiastes, Solomon talked about that. Doing, doing the righteous things and not, not making it. The only thing that will fill us and satisfy us is God. And this is why in many churches you have people sitting in the pews that don't know God and they're empty and they, don't, and they look around at all the other Christians and try to figure out, are these people fulfilled or are they just playing at it like I am? Because they'll be sitting there looking around and going, I don't feel it, I don't, I'm empty. And then they watch those with real faith in God that are always, almost always content. They're, 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 they're excited. I think that's it right there. I, I, I see people, not necessarily in this church, the churches I've gone to, there's no peace. No peace, no contentment. Paul said, I have learned to be content with much and with little because his contentment was in God, not the things that he had external. And this is so important. If you've learned to be content, God can give you much and you'll stay content in God and use his, what he gives you to bless others and bring, bring the gospel. Or if you don't have anything, you stay content. And this is something that is critical. Why do we have so much going on in our world today? You know, I hear everybody go, you know, to make it in this world, the husband and wife both have to work. Well, only if you want to keep up with the Joneses and have everything. But if you learn to be content with whatever God places in your hands, you will be okay with one very small income or, or one big income, whatever it might be. But you need to make the sacrifices to stay within what God has given you. We raised, we, when, when we were a younger married couple and with four kids, my wife stayed at home and I worked. Did we have everything that everybody had? No. But we'd also, she was able to work at home and take care of the kids. And believe me, I understand how much it is for a wife to work at home. It's a big job. And we didn't go out to dinner. We didn't have the, you know, very often. We didn't have two cars. We, 
Now, we didn't, we didn't have a lot of things other people had, but we had God. And our kids benefited from it. I really believe that the kids benefit with the mother being at home. So, but where is our contentment? What is the foundation of our life needs to be God, and what he builds upon that foundation is what he builds upon it. And we want to keep that in focus because there is great contentment in God. There really is. And it's interesting to talk to people and see who's really following God and how content they are with much or with little and hear their language sometimes. And it's wonderful to be around Christians who are just happy with God. God is my Savior. He's my Lord. He's my Master. He's my provider. I have never gone without. I've gone without a lot of things that people think I might have should have had. (laughs) We've always had a roof over our head, food on the table, and utilities running because God has been the one that's provided. Now, I've had to work very hard sometimes to keep all those things up there and take advantage of the opportunities God gave, but he always had the opportunities there and made the provision. Don't you believe he made us to work? Oh, we were definitely created to work. Oh yeah, God expects us to work. He created man and put him in the garden to work before the fall. So work is what we are created to do. That's very important. God always expects us to, number one, work, but also to walk in our salvation and and do the best we can. But he's going to give us the strength to do it as well. And, but it's not designed to get us into heaven. It's just designed to give us a good testimony in front of people. Doesn't God expect us to think for ourselves and handle things? Be independent is what I'm saying. I'm going to give that a qualified yes because I think I know what you're trying to say. He does want us to think and consider and have reasons for what we believe. Independence is a little overrated because that's what Satan always wants to do is be independent. But even in self-sufficient, we want to be careful because he wants us relying on him, but not to the point where we don't go out and do anything. But he expects us to work for what he gives us, what I'm trying to say. Again, to, to a degree. We have to stay balanced in that area because if we go too much that I have to earn everything I'm doing, then I stop depending on God and I become, I'm trying to nuance this very carefully because I, I, I know what you're saying, but I want to be very careful because I could work so hard that it's saying I, everything depends on me and not depend on God. And God wants us dependent on him, but not to the point where we just say, okay, God, I'm, I'm sitting in my chair waiting for you to dump the, dump the blessings over my head. There's a balance that we have to walk in those ones. Everything about the Christian walk is a balance involved in it. And this is some place where churches get off all the time and it's easy for us to get off. There's a group that go, they're so grace oriented that God doesn't have any rules and I can just get away with anything because God's gonna forgive me. Then the other side of it is, I've gotta follow all these rules and there's practically no grace in my life. We need to be in the center where, yes, I know there's grace and God's gonna forgive me and he's gonna give me everything I don't, don't deserve, but his rules are not totally discarded. There's value in the rules. There's value in law. There's value in the, in, the, in the correct walk. Not that I get to heaven because of it, but there's great reward in walking in a righteous lifestyle and a great testimony in walking with the right lifestyle. This is the whole reason for the book of James, where James says, 
show me your faith without works and I will show you my faith by my works. In other words, he wasn't necessarily saying you weren't in the faith, but he's definitely saying there's no way you can prove it. Tell, prove to me that you're, that you're saved without your works. He goes, I'm not going to say you're not, but prove to me somehow without works that you are saved. And he says, I will show you by my walk, <laughs> the way I'm walking with God, that I am saved. Now, even with that statement, you can go way too far because there's people, we all know people who are really disciplined and, and seem to have their whole life together as far as walking righteous. And the more you talk to them, they're depending on their righteousness to get them into heaven and not God. So even with that statement, you can go way too far off to the, the side. We need to stay in a balanced position with everything because it's, we know that God says depend on him, but not to, we don't depend on him so much that I just sit on my butt waiting for rewards. But I also don't go so far the other direction that I work so hard that I forget that God's my dependence and not, not myself. But it's always going to come down to what is the balanced point of view. If you're, if you're on an extreme and if you're in a church that's teaching extremes on any, any direction, they're probably wrong. That's been, my, that's been my understanding. If you're on a far extreme, it's, it's a very dangerous place to be and most likely not correct. God says there's sin. And there is sin. And we need to be on that extreme that says, if God says it's sin, it's sin. Does that mean I judge them and don't deal with, you know, don't, don't talk to them and all that? Not necessarily. Now, if they're in the church trying to promote their sin, there's a different story and a different rule involved in that because it's the church, church being hurt. But if, if we're not talking to people who are, are sinners, who are we going to evangelize? Besides the fact that we are a sinner still anyway. But God's saying, go out and evangelize. Look at the people Jesus hung out with. He got criticized all the time by the scribes and Pharisees because he hung out with the prostitutes, the drunkards, the, the tax collectors. He was out there meeting with people who needed to God and delivering the message of truth to them. The good news for us is everybody needs God. So we need to go out and talk with people. We need to be able to share with people. Share with those that we don't think need it because they seem to be having all their life together. They probably need them more, than, more so and might even realize it. All the way down to the, the prostitutes and the drunks and the, and the drug addicts and everything. They need our help as well because they need the message of God because they're not going to get victory without him. They're trying to fill a hole in their life that they, that they think the drugs and alcohol and stuff is going to fill. It won't. On the other extreme, they're trying to fill it with the stuff. You know, I've got, I've got my million-dollar contract for being the best sports player in the, in the nation, but I feel empty. They need it just as much. The, the successful businessman needs it just as much because he's given up everything for his God. We need to keep in mind these people that don't have, fill it with, with God have a God they're trying to fill it with. It's just not going to fill it. And we need to recognize this. The drug addict, the alcoholic, they have a God. Gambling loser. I'm a gambler, but you know, they have a God. And that is why they deny every, everything else. They deny the, the bad parts of what they're going through because this is their God. Their God's going to rescue them somehow. The, the executive making his money, he's got a God. He's given up everything, most cases, for that, that God, that business, that money. And they many times will get their business, you know, get their success in business and lose their family. 
because they gave up their family for their, for their God. The new, the new big one nowadays is family becoming a God. There's a lot of places people who have made family their God. And it's not, not necessarily wrong, but they, everything is centered around family. Got to get the kids in every sport and every activity. We've got to be together every single night of the week. We've got to do this. We've got to do that. Uh, nope, can't work, can't, can't work any extra hours. You know, I really don't want to work at all because I'm taking time away from my family. And this is something that we need to be careful. Good things can become bad things if they take us away from our relationship with God. Being good and being righteous can be taking us away from God if we're not careful. Paul was a very righteous man, before, you know, killing Christians. You know, thinking that he was doing good as he obeyed all the, all the laws as far as he was concerned. But doing everything against God because he was so focused on the rules being everything. We need to be careful about what do we place before God. And it is so easy to put things before God. Here in America, most people put television in front of God. Now, I don't have time to read the Bible. Uh, how many hours of TV did you watch yesterday? Well, just seven or eight. Yeah, social networking. Yeah, uh, social networking. You know, I don't have time to read my Bible. Well, how long were you on Facebook? Oh, just, just 10 hours yesterday. Yeah. Uh, how many things do we have putting in front of God? Very easily. It could be friends. It could be anything that is placed before God that, that says, this is more important to me. And it is easy to do this. And we think of when God says, have no other gods before me, the very first thing we think of is idols, but anything can be an idol. Anything can be an idol out there. Anything that I place more important than God and spend all my time considering and trying to please myself and make myself happy by doing anything else is an idol. God is saying, I'm bringing it back to the foundation. These guys are teaching you bad things. We're going to bring you back down to the foundation. Here's my truth. We need to always come back to that foundation statement because foundation is what it's all built on. And God is saying, here's my truth. The truth is we need God. The truth is we couldn't come to God without him doing it. So that's why Jesus came, died for our sins so that he could be the bridge between us and God, paying a debt we couldn't pay. Because what did we earn? We've been memorizing it. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We couldn't come to him without that death because we couldn't pay the price. Actually, we were going to pay the price by death. Eternal separation from God. And Jesus said, no, I don't want you to have to pay that. I'll pay, that. I'll pay the separation and you get, to, you get to go to the Father. Very important for us to understand Everything hinges on that gift. And we've got to be very careful because sometimes we can get very righteous. Look at, look at what I've done. Look at my walk. I'm better, than, I'm better than these other people because I've been walking with God longer. Or I'm, I'm closer to God because of whatever it is. And while some of that may have some truth in it, we're still not better because it's all by grace. All by grace. And the more we realize it's because of God's grace that I have anything then I'm more willing to deal with anybody. Because the old statement, there but where the grace of God go I. Any one of us could have been that person who's 
that we think is too, too, too beneath us to deal with. Yeah. If I hadn't got saved, who knows where I would have been with the anger that I had in my life. I would probably be wearing the orange and being ministered to in the prison like, that I'm working at if I hadn't had my temper taken away. Yeah. We never know what, what would have been out there. We don't know what our life would be like if God hadn't put one little marble in our road to switch our path, one rock to change our path that we actually went the right white way around and, and missed, the, missed the road that, that we would have been put on. Many times I talk to people and they talk about how many times they should have died before they got saved. You know, the accident that they were in, that they saw their life flash before their eyes, the, the, the knife that came flying their way that just veered off at the last moment. You, know, you hear all these different stories and those are the only the ones they know. I think it's going to, and recognize. I think it's going to be amazing when we get to heaven and see things, when God shows us things from the spiritual side of things, and we realize how many near misses there were that we're not even aware of because the angelic forces kept them from happening because they weren't supposed to happen to us. I believe there's many things out there that would be very scary if we knew what was going on around us. Because I've said this before, Satan's goal is to destroy humanity because humans are created in God's image. Therefore, he hates humanity and humanity can be redeemed and go to heaven. His goal is to take as much of humanity to hell as he possibly can. And I remember I've been said this many times. It's not that he's looking to build a kingdom in hell. He's a prisoner in hell and will be a prisoner in hell. Hell is not his own private kingdom. It is a prison for the demons and, and Satan and will be a prison for anybody who rejects Christ. Okay, Satan is not building a kingdom. He is not a king in hell. He is a prisoner. His goal is just to hurt God as much as he can by taking as much of his most precious creation with him. So our job is to go out and evangelize and bring people into the kingdom. Satan and the, and the works against us is to take people away from, from his kingdom. We need to be living a lifestyle that draws people away, not repels them. Because the worst thing I find when I witness to somebody is they'll, they'll quote some, some Christian that they know and say, well, this person you know, doesn't live the Christian lifestyle. You know, and they claim to be a Christian. And it's real hard to get past that statement because you don't want to criticize the person that they're saying is a Christian sad thing is they probably aren't a Christian or they're a very bad example of a Christian and may not even be a Christian. That's between them and God, but they're drawing people away into hell. And if nothing else, they are Christian, they've got some answering to do before God when he, when he calls them and says, this person used you, you as an example of why they're not going, to, why they didn't choose me. Now God will put others in their path and, and bring out what Christianity is why make life difficult? <laughs> we do not want to be excusing our, our actions. We want to go before God and repent and say, God, help me get over this sin because it is not something that is going to draw people to you, whatever that sin is. Because if we think we have some private sin, God says if we don't deal with it, he's going to shout it out from the rooftops. And the more responsibility we have in people's lives, the louder that shout has to be. If you only have a few people that you have a relationship with that know you that way, then they will be the ones that get to see your sin when it comes in. 
If you're somebody like some of these televangelists that have lived in sin, the world gets to know their sin because of how bad it is. And God says, you have influence over millions of people. Millions of people are going to know your sin. It makes us have to think twice about unquote hidden sins that are not hurting anybody. All sins will hurt at least us, if not many other people. And God's saying, deal it, deal with it, or I'm going to reveal it. And it's much easier to repent and deal with it without it being revealed to, you know, even if it's just your family. You know, even if it's just your family that it gets revealed to, it's still not a nice, you know, nice thing to have your sin revealed that you think is secret and, and, and closed and closeted. And this is something that's happening in this world many times with things like pornography where people are getting so sucked into pornography and thinking that it's, oh, I can do this with no problem. And God's going to say, repent. <laughs> repent or it's going to come out. And it's pretty easy to come out in this day and age because somebody will get into the listings of all the different internet sites that have these things and, and, and broadcast it and publish it like just happened a, a short while back and several, several big-name pastors' names were found on the list. Okay? It's not God will reveal our sin because he wants righteous people that can bring people to Christ. Not because he's trying to make us good, not because we're trying to earn it, but he wants that witness for him. And this is something that's important because we are his ambassadors. Everything we do is a reflection of him. And it should be a good reflection. And we know it's not going to be perfect, but it shouldn't bring shame. What happens in, for a country's ambassador, if they bring shame to their country, they're recalled. They're no longer ambassadors because they brought shame to their country. Because when people look at an ambassador, what they're, what they're looking at is, this is what that country is like. And we have several ambassadors in America from other countries that are living the lifestyle of their nation, which for us is a very shameful lifestyle. But we also have some of our ambassadors that brought shame to our country, and they get called back as quick as they find, get found out. God says we're his ambassadors. We are ambassadors for Christ, which means that we're to live in a way that brings him glory and honor because we represent it. What we say, do, and think reflects on him. All right, let's go ahead and close here. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to come before you and, and to look at you. We thank you for how much you love us. That you, Lord, most importantly, you give us the strength to be victorious. You give us the strength to live the way you want us to do, and it all comes down to you. And we just thank you in your son's precious name. Amen.